everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Core Consults RX Podcast. Cole and AJ, myself, we're here with another accredited episode. Yes. Thanks to our friends at FreeCE.com. So Cole, we are going to be talking about chronic uh, coronary syndrome. Is that correct? That is correct. Perfect. Which is a term that a lot of people probably haven't really too much right yeah i still kind of switched around the names a little bit yeah not too long ago so um we're gonna talk through some of the basics of this and go through the treatment and kind of the long-term management as well but uh if you are a free ce member then make sure that after you listen to this episode you go to the link in the show notes and uh, it'll take you to free ce's website and and the post activity exam for this particular episode answer the questions and you'll get your one hour of acp accredited uh, um, continuing education if you're a pharmacist or a nurse. And uh, if you're not a member of FreeC.com, you're not an unlimited member, so you can access all their content, including our podcasts, make sure that uh, you check out uh, there are all the different learning opportunities they have, the monographs, the live events, um, all kinds of stuff. We have a lot of episodes that are accredited now, so make sure you take advantage of it. There's a discount code in the show notes as well that you can use uh, off your annual membership fee, but definitely check out FreeC.com's unlimited membership. And thanks to them for, again, partnering with us. And with that being said, and before we even get started on the content, AJ, how are you, sir? How's your third year in pharmacy school going? It's going. Yeah? It's going so close, but so far away. Do you, uh, when do you start picking rotations and stuff for the spin? I'm already supposed to have picked them. Okay. Mm. So do you not get to <laughs> so pick you're going to get the last picks? Definitely. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So you're literally just letting the spin choose for you? Bottom of the barrel. Wow. <laughs> it's like that's the total opposite of what I would want to do. So is, is that on purpose or is that just because you lost track of time and it's adversity, man, it just could make me a better pharmacist. And I, I really like the challenge. That was the plan. So what's the real answer? I forgot. Okay. I thought so. I'm <laughs> just, just going to start listing I, all the bad rotations you're going to have. All that the, I can just see. I, I will say I, I give you credit for trying to put a positive spin on it. I like that. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I definitely uh, was a little more strategic with my, Rotation selection. Yeah, which I guess you can only be so strategic because the way they do it at our school, Mike mentioned the spin, but you kind of put preferences and then they... And they don't take any of them to they account. Spin, and they just right, they spin random. it out. It's like bingo, you know. Yeah. B1 is this AMCARE rotation. So Y4 is this acute care rotation. Yeah, and if you don't pick like AJ, you probably just end up with nothing but horrible acute <laughs> cares that he's going to spend nothing but yeah. 80 hours a week in the hospital. Pediatric neuro ICU for seven months. There you go. Yeah. See, you'd be an expert. You'll be an expert. But uh, yeah, so I uh, I don't miss those days. You going to dress up for Halloween, AJ? That's the plan. Me and my dog have matching. What, what are you going to be? Just overalls. That's it. No just overalls. costume. Yeah. Your big Doberman has overalls? Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Is uh, Jackson dressing up? Uh, probably. I don't know. She has like pumpkin pajamas form or something like that. So okay. I, I don't know if that's the height. She, he may have other plans. I don't know. Nathan was a pumpkin. Was he? Year. Oh, perfect. There yeah. you go. So it's going to be a giraffe this year. Perfect. Yeah. What are you going to do for the long neck? <laughs> it's genetic. So <laughs> that's good. Friends in the family. That's good. Uh, yeah. I should have done like a Star Wars character or something, but uh, why well, would missed opportunity? It is a missed opportunity. Next year. We'll do it. Baby Yoda? Oh, maybe. Grogu? Grogu? There yeah, you go. Golly. See, we're nerds. Yeah. I was mm. Jar Jar. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good character. All right. Um, so let's jump into this, talking about um, chronic coronary syndrome. So typically when we talk about this, or that kind of terminology, we're talking about acute coronary syndrome. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, that is something that uh, we've gone over in the past, but um, this chronic coronary syndrome is basically the, sort of the new um, terminology when we're talking about um, what was once like stable ischemic heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, or chronic stable angina, is that the same Yeah, thing? that's the other kind yeah. of term. But there's a bunch of different names that have kind of gone, yeah. you know, ischemic disease, whatever. But uh, chronic coronary syndrome is more of the acute, or the, I'm sorry, the chronic long-term management of, you know, a patient that has, basically underlying CAD, coronary artery disease, that is resulting in angina and, you know, some of those types of symptoms. And I think that they, part of the reason they changed the term, other than just wanting to confuse people, is some people's angina is not perfectly reproducible and predictable. It can be kind of sometimes all over the place and still be considered chronic coronary syndrome. Mm. And so it's more of an umbrella term to capture that yeah at least that's what i read i think that's why they refer to as syndromes as well instead of so it's plural it doesn't always fit into the box that maybe you would think of when you hear chronic stable angina or something so coronary artery disease kind of the underlying you know disease state is the buildup atherosclerotic plaque um, that's basically uh, accumulating in the coronary arteries um, so you can sometimes break it down into obstructive, non-obstructive. I believe it's um, greater than 50% of stenosis would, would equal obstructive. Um, but the patient can have sort of like these long, like stable periods where the disease doesn't really progress or at least progresses slowly without being symptomatic. And then they can quickly become unstable, uh, whereas if, you know, if some of the um, plaque were to rupture um, and cause a you know, acute atherothrombic um, event right. that would potentially lead them to an acute coronary syndrome right. event, which is then, you know, broken down STEMI and STEMI unstable angina. So we're not talking about in the emergency situation, although sometimes obviously the, the chest pain portion is a big focus of this in general. And so acute or chronic can both have that um, angina present that chest pain so that uh it can they can kind of start off looking similar hopefully with the the chronic that typically is resolved with with treatment and those events become less and less with more maintenance therapy right um so yeah broken down coronary disease is broken down into what mike was talking about acs and then chronic coronary syndrome patients with suspected coronary artery disease and stable anginal symptoms and or dyspnea so that's another thing that's kind of captured under the chronic coronary syndrome is not necessarily um, uh, classic angina signs, but they might have dyspnea on exertion and it still be related to chronic coronary syndrome. Um, also, patients with new onset heart failure or left ventricular uh, dysfunction and suspected coronary artery disease can fall under this category. Asymptomatic and symptomatic patients with stabilized symptoms one year after initial diagnosis or revascularization um, and asymptomatic subjects in whom coronary artery disease is detected at screening. So they are going, there are some things they can do to screen and confirm that they have coronary artery disease. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about angina and kind of some ways to prevent the, that from happening to the patients who have this. Um, but it's really, uh, you know, sort of a, a result of increased myocardial oxygen demand um, and then having a fixed decrease in the myocardial oxygen supply. So basically speaking, you know, the, the blood, the oxygen is not able to travel through the blood um, as readily as it once was because of that atherosclerotic buildup and so the lower oxygen levels leads to the with the feeling of chest pain that um, patients will will describe um so you know everything that we're doing is one hoping to 
decrease the risk of kind of moving things and progressing forward, um, cutting down on the plaque buildup, so lipid controls, things like that, smoking cessation becomes a factor long term. But then actually treating the angina and basically opening up um, you know, those uh, arteries to allow that blood flow more readily and take away any other factors that could be attributing to that, that myocardial um, oxygen demand uh, or supply. So that's going to be kind of the, the mechanism in which we're trying to go about um, reducing the risk of patients experiencing this engine on a daily basis. And a lot of our management uh, revolves around that. Right. And like Mike said, if the plaque ruptures leads to a thrombus formation, coronary blood flow will rapidly reduce. And that's a medical emergency. That's acute coronary syndrome. There's also something called vasospastic angina um, or Prinz metal uh, angina, variant angina. And this is chest pain due to vasospasm of the coronary arteries. And it can occur at rest. So it's not... Um, usually associated with an underlying coronary artery disease. It's not something you would do a stress test for to necessarily reproduce. Uh, and that is important because there are some medications that you don't want to use in vasospastic angina that are our standard for chronic coronary syndrome. Yep. So I guess let's just start off with chest pain in general. So even in an acute setting, you know, there's some things we want to kind of established, you know, based on the patient or their family member's responses, you know, to the, the situation at hand or, you know, if they're, they're first having, you know, approaching care for this, if, if they're not having an, a, an angina attack at that moment. Um, so basically, you know, we want to figure out like the onset and then duration. So did the symptoms sort of gradually build in intensity over like a few minute period? Um, was there like this sudden onset? Um, you know, did it have radiating, you know, to the upper lower back? Um, you know, is it something that uh, is sort of like a fleeting chest pain for a few second durations and then, you know, maybe not actually associated with any type of ischemia? Mm -hmm. um, the location and radiation um, of the actual pain itself, uh, the severity, obviously, the other precipitating factors. So, like, you know, were you just resting? Were you under emotional stress? Were you doing some kind of physical exercise? Those types of things. Um, obviously, like, occurrence at rest might lead you more of a like a vasospastic angina type of thing but um positional changes can also change things if it's a um like a positional chest pain or they could be from you know, non-ischemic uh, origin like some kind of musculoskeletal issue or something like that um and then what actually helped to relieve the angina symptoms if, if the patient has access to anything so nitroglycerin mm -hmm. or something like that um it's not like necessarily diagnostic but it is you know, at least another clue. Right. Um, and then, you know, any kind of other symptoms as far as frequency or the having them describe the pain. Um, there's a, a really good, um, like diagram, I guess it's very simplistic on uh, the, um, I think this is the American Heart Association guidelines from 2021. Um, AJ, will you show my screen real quick? This, uh, diagram here just shows basically the high probability of ischemia, more of a central pressure squeezing, gripping sensation or heaviness, tightness, left-sided, dull aching. Those are all things that are more higher probability of being ischemia versus like a sharp, fleeting, shifting, um, positional type pain, ripping, burning sensations more on the lower probability side. So it's a very simple way of looking at it based on like commonly used descriptors that patients, you know, typically will throw at you. And so that is kind of how you can help gauge whether it's related to ischemia or not. But of course, when somebody goes into the um, ER and complains of chest pain, it's like, ah, you're going to go to the front of the line because it could be something really bad like an MI or, or acute coronary syndrome, or it could be something um, that is not necessarily an emergency like chronic coronary syndrome. But there's a whole host of things that have 
issues that could be related to chest pain. So some of that um, differential that they have to work out is, of course, whether it's an acute coronary syndrome, um, and there's kind of clinical findings that you can see on physical exam that would point you in one direction or another. Acute coronary syndrome might have sweating, um, increased breathing, increased heart rate. Also, they'd have to work through whether it could be a PE, an aortic dissection, esophageal rupture, pericarditis, myocarditis, some sort of pneumonia or pneumothorax. Um, it could even be herpes that was um, having pain radiating in the chest or something like that. So there's costochondritis. Um, so there's a number of things that it could be that they have to work through to determine whether it's an emergent situation or just something that that, uh, that is more chronic. Like yeah. This. So like, for example, if they're having chest pain, but they're also having, you know, fever and issues like that, especially increase in the, you know, in the pain and the having in the um, suspended position, things like that, that may be more of like a pericarditis or myocarditis type of thing. So like little nuances can kind of lead you in one path or the other. Um, but really the, the first thing after the history and the physical exam that you'd want to obtain is a, an EKG, ECG, however you want to say it. Um, we were just talking about this before we started recording of how we, how we all say, it. I, I do historically use EKG um, still, even though technically ECG is proper. <laughs> Yeah. Let me guess, AJ. You just say it the right way. I do. Okay, I figure. Because he's a young man. Yeah. He hasn't been around. He has, he's, not as, he's not as burned out and jaded as Cole and myself. <laughs> so, but Though the, we are updating our, our vernacular with chronic coronary syndrome. So there you so. go. Look at us go. We can do it. See, AJ? Halfway there. You doubted us. <laughs> now we just got to get our other terminology right. So ECG, because um, obviously you're trying to establish whether or not they, if they are having an acute coronary syndrome, and that's what's causing the chest pain, then, you know, it could be a, a STEMI, NSTEMI, something along those lines, which we would follow those guidelines if that was, you know, the case. Um, or it could be some sort of like new arrhythmia, you know, which we would have to manage depending on what type it was. Um, if it was a normal EKG um, or just basically something that wasn't, you know, diagnostic in any way we would basically want to repeat that if if the symptoms persisted um or if you know the next step would be getting electroponin levels and uh if the chest pain is not going away and if those show that there's an increase or a positive troponin level then we would probably want to um, continue to repeat that ekg until something shows up if, if it does yeah and if it is acute chest pain like he said um and we do an ecg we have to determine the cause uh if we don't think it's cardiac related then there's a different path you go down uh if we think it is then that if it's acute that would be a STEMI so you'd want to follow this or it could be a STEMI so you'd want to follow the STEMI guidelines if not there's other things acute coronary syndrome that's not a STEMI acute aortic syndrome PE acute myopericarditis valvular heart disease that sort of thing and also that kind of goes back to some like kind of tying in all the physical and history and whatnot back into what those findings show and that obviously can continue on the path of the differential diagnosis. Right. So, um, you know, the, the new 2021 guidelines from American Heart Association are basically um, providing you with these like sort of algorithms, these flow charts of how to handle these acute situations. Because initially, if, if there's possible ACS, then you have to handle, you know, looking at the, the risk of, you know, whether or not you need to do further testing um, or if you need to go, if it's a high risk patient, you might need to go and do invasive coronary angiography to to make sure that you know they are not having an actual event in that moment um and if if not then i can you know maybe discharge you and have them just follow up but uh you know if the patient has you know no established cad then 
you know, some of those initial tests coming through, like Cole was saying, you can actually have a, like a diagnosis of where they get the point with a chronic coronary um, syndrome. They can do various tests um, to kind of look for, you know, other signs. There's a whole flow chart, basically. I, um, AJ, show my screen real quick, because I don't want to go through all this, because this is not our area of expertise, but this is one example of how many steps that are involved in the algorithm. I know it's probably hard to see, but um, that uh, gives you an idea. So it's it's very, um, very thorough, I would say, and kind of walks you through all the different potential options for imaging and, um, you know, whether or not you're going to do like a stress testing versus a coronary CT angiography or, you know, invasive uh, angiography at some point so um, check that out in the new guidelines there's a lot of really good charts that are worth hanging on to and the coronary ct angiography is the the Mm non-invasive is that the Mm non-invasive one okay so they kind of with imaging uh if they're going to or with testing they're a lot of times they're deciding between the two non-invasive options which is the coronary ct angiography or the use of stress imaging and then if um they aren't really getting what they want from that or they're not lining up from what they suspect and they might have to go an invasive route. When you're determining which one to do, generally between the two, um, there isn't any like difference in mortality by using the um, one versus the other and the coronary CT angiography is generally considered more expensive. Um, so in that sense, the, the stress imaging might be better. Um, but it just kind of depends on where you're at, what the physicians are familiar with, what technology they have available to them. Um, there's stress testing with, um, you know, putting them on a treadmill and having them walk. And that's kind of what you're familiar with. And you hear a lot of people talk about, there's also pharmacologic stress testing for a patient who can't physically do that. They can, if it's safe to do so, they can get the medication to get their heart rate to a point where they could induce angina and make it reproducible. Um, but uh, it also depends on what your goal is. If you're looking to rule out obstructive coronary artery disease or detect a non-obstructive coronary artery disease, um, the CCTA might be better. For ischemia-guided management, the stress imaging might be better. Um, and like I said, the availability and what the physicians are used to, um, their age might play a role. So if they're over 65, um, then there's a higher likelihood of obstructive CAD, so stress imaging might be better. Under 65, it's less likely, so CCTA might be better. Uh, and then prior tests that they've had, if they have other indications um, for using one or the other, um, like um, anomalies in the coronary arteries or um, suspected coronary microvascular dysfunction, it might point you one way or another. So uh, just know that those different tests are out there. And then the other thing you'd want to do, and again, this is potentially in an acute setting where you're not really sure what's going on or, you know, you're, you're suspecting the patient might have coronary artery disease and chronic coronary syndromes, but, uh, getting patients, you know, CBC, their CMP, so you can check the renal function, um, getting a lipid profile and A1C thyroid panel, um, all those things are going to be good and can help, you know, sort of lay out your long-term maintenance plan for the patient. Yeah. And long-term, there's two real treatment goals. So the first is to slow the progression of the atherosclerosis, if that is present, um, and prevent complications, long-term complications like heart attack, heart failure, stroke, mortality, of course. Um, We can do this through risk factor modification, um, medications to reduce the risks of further vascular damage. So we'll kind of talk through some of the specifics on that, Um, but treating other diseases that can increase cardiac risk or lifestyle changes, that sort of thing. 
The other is to reduce the number of ischemic episodes and increase the amount of exertion or exercise the patient can accomplish before the chest pain occurs. So a lot of the medications we'll talk about for this don't, by treating the angina, we're not necessarily providing any mortality benefit. It's more of a um, quality of life thing. Uh, but we still want to reduce the number of episodes and I guess it's more for quality of life. We want to reduce the number of episodes and then increase the amount of things that they're able to do while also treating underlying conditions that could progress the atherosclerosis and then lead to one of those negative events long-term, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I mean, at the same time too, like sometimes treating the angina, depending on the agent you're using, if depending on their comorbidities and stuff, they can potentially. Right. It definitely can, risk, especially so. if there's other things going on, I guess, like strictly like a beta blocker for angina doesn't necessarily reduce mortality, but if there's, you know, yeah. pre previous MI or something like that, then of course it, it definitely could. All right. So, um, some kind of risk factor modifications that patients can do in long-term, you know, medications and whatnot. Obviously the physical activity, weight management are always big. If the patient has any sort of issues with, you know, being overweight or obesity or anything, lowering weight can definitely decrease cardiovascular risk all around. Um, physical activity always is beneficial for various disease states. Um, you know, having them meet with an actual dietitian is definitely a good option potentially if, you know, they've never been kind of educated on proper dieting and healthy eating. Um, usually we're going to use statin therapy for our lipid management, um, depending on what other risk factors they have, what their ASCVD risk is, um, if they've actually had an established event or anything like that, um, that's going to obviously change how we would, which statin we would use and which intensity and whatnot. But, you know, a Torva or a Resuva, either moderate or high intensity, depending on the situation is usually, um, first line. And then from there, you know, you would potentially add a Zetamib and then maybe even a PCSK9 inhibitor, again, depending on what all the risk factors are and what's going on with the patient. Um, from a blood pressure management standpoint, we typically want to get these patients under 130 over 80, just like most other disease states nowadays. And, uh, again, like Cole was, we would kind of touched on, depending on what medications you're utilizing for the angina, maybe that can be beneficial, um, for the blood pressure as well. But regardless, we need to get the blood pressure down um, to that goal uh, measurement as long as a patient can tolerate it. And then if they do have diabetes, getting their A1C under control, um, ideally less than seven. But, you know, depending on the patient, their age and all that might be a little bit more lenient. Yeah. So this this would be an instance where you might, you know, you might see a patient on like lisinopril and then metoprolol. And you're like, they shouldn't have been on metoprolol second line for blood pressure. Well, they're not. They're using metoprolol to treat their angina. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, but before we get into the beta blockers, nitrates are a mainstay of angina treatment acute um, and maybe not first line, but are also used to prevent angina as well. Have you ever seen somebody have a heart attack before? Neither mm -hmm. have I. But we, you, the, what you know with the nitrates is the little amber vials of the nitroglycerin and the little sublingual tablets. Like they come in packs of 100 and nobody knows how to build the insurance correctly. <laughs> um, that's what you're familiar with, with um, people carrying those around in their pocket. And a lot of, um, I guess I should say up-to-date, up-to-date recommends anyone with angina having those, like they prescribe them for everybody um, to treat the acute episodes. And interestingly, to prevent episodes, if they're doing, um, if there's some exertion, exert activity that they're about to do that they know causes angina they might say go ahead and take one before that which i wasn't super familiar with that but and they even comment that a lot of people aren't because usually it's used when they are having symptoms they take it but it can be used right before too mm. 
So what they do, nitrates, they reduce myocardial oxygen demand, they decrease preload, and they increase uh, oxygen supply by increasing blood flow. Um, so there are instances where you definitely would not want to use them. We know with the PDE5 inhibitors, Viagra, um, and um, Cialis, contraindicated, it can be very dangerous, so don't use those together. Um, otherwise, it can cause hypotension, headache, and then a nitrate tolerance. So this isn't as much of an issue with um, the uh, sublingual ones that you're using acutely, but with the daily medications, the daily nitrates that you take, I will talk about it more specifically, but you can have tachyphylaxis where you get a tolerance to the nitrate and it's not working as well. Um, otherwise, uh, it can cause fainting and flushing and lightheadedness, um, but for the most part, it's reasonably well tolerated. Yeah, especially in the as-needed setting. Yes. Yeah. And we got a few different options for like as-needed uh, short-acting nitrates. So we have, typically it's going to be a nitroglycerin, um, you know, based medication, but we have the, the sublingual tablets like Cole was just talking about. So that's like the nitrostat. Um, but they also have like a sublingual spray called nitro mist if you're trying to be fancy. And then they even have a go nitro, uh, which is probably the lamest name ever. But, really? That's uh, kind of cool. Sublingual powder. Reminds uh, me of that... Yeah, the powder it reminds me of that. Um, what was that energy drink that was blue with the orange letters? I have no idea. All right, I'll think AJ. of it. It has something to do with nitro. Oh, I, you know NOS. what? I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think NOS. it's just called nitrous or something. It's called NOS. Yeah, nitric oxide or whatever. Or is it just Oh, NOS? I guess that's what it stands for. But uh, yeah, because uh, now that you say that, my, the security guard at my old clinic used to drink those all the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, we always see that in his bottle, NOS. It did probably stand for nitric oxide, but I looked at it as a high schooler and saw NOS. But that is what NOS stands for, right? Oh, well, as a high schooler, I didn't know that. From Fast and the Furious? Is that what you heard, heard NOS of or NOS before? Um, that's like where that term started not a big fast and furious guy oh good it's not (laughs) they're not good i'm just saying like that's where typically people are talking about maybe i saw the first one but i haven't seen number nine oh that's won the academy award (laughs) for best movie ever made um so we have those uh those options for short acting nitrates um like cole was saying this is like an as needed type of thing when they need like immediate relief from chest pain uh so first signs of chest pain the patient takes a dose um after the first dose they're still having chest pain you know they're going to start calling 911 to make sure you get ems on the way um you can you wait five minutes after the first one you give a second dose you can wait five more minutes and then take a third dose uh, but you're not supposed to take more than three doses within 15 minutes um at at least not in a medical setting so you know that's kind of the instructions to give patients hopefully ems is going to be getting there soon after and can start the process of escorting the patient to the the hospital if the pain is still happening if they're you know that's where you may be suspecting more of an, an acute situation um, and then like Cole said, you can't take them five to 10 minutes kind of before activities that, are, that start the, you know, that there's known to cause that engine in the first place. Right. So if you've ever wondered why they're in those little teeny, um, amber vials, uh, you do need to keep them in that original container. And the reason is it can interact with plastic and lose potency when exposed to light. Um, so that's why they're in that dark class container. You also don't want to store them in Um, not only a plastic vial, but a vial with a child safety cap, because during an episode of angina, you don't want them having to struggle to open the safety cap, which is funny because those little nitric, um, the the little nitrostat amber vials are so small. Anybody without like fine motor dexterity would not be able to quickly open one of those, even though it's not child resistant. Well, and then getting the tablets out, you just dump them all in your hand. It's just just like, it's very high likelihood that you're just going to be like, screw it and just throw them all in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. They're very small. 
Those plows are. Small. I guess it's for cost and convenience, like um, transportation. Yeah, but man, they're they're teeny tablets. Put some, put some fillers in there so that, we can get a bigger tablet. I know, I know. Um, also, don't store them in the bathroom, as you can imagine, the moisture uh, could could be an issue with the sublingual tabs. Um, keep them close to you, you know, in your in your chest pocket if you have one, or your or your purse or whatever. Um, Ideally, patients are sitting down while they're taking it because of some of the side effects they could have. You don't, wouldn't want them to pass out and that sort of thing. Um, also, it's important just to counsel the patient how to use a sublingual tablet um, if they're not familiar with it. Um, so it, it can it's administered to be under the tongue to provide rapid absorption and avoids first pass metabolism. Um, but they would need to keep it under the tongue until it dissolves. So just to explain that, um, once open, the tablets are only good for six months. Um, so if more than likely they're not going to use all hundred of them, is it hundred or twenty five? They come in twenty five. Yeah, but to, that's a good. I'm glad for, just to take a quick, you know, interjection here. The uh, um, because the, the little package they come in has four of those twenty five. That's what I'm bottles. confused by. Yeah, but the reason for that because a lot of times they just rate for twenty five. Yeah, and then you just pull one of those out of there and give it to the patient. Yeah, but they're in that four count because they ideally want the patient to have one at home, one at work. One somewhere else, you know, in the whatever, not in the yep. car, but you know what I mean. Yep. Somewhere they they may be traveling with them, so they always have them available. So that's why they're actually, ideally, you want to write it for a hundred at a time, and yep. then just get new ones. They're generic. They're not expensive. It's been a while since I've um, been dispensing, but I knew I had a hundred in my mind for some reason. Um, so yeah, <laughs> if, got if they're not using all of those in six months, which they very well may not, then they they should need a refill just because of the shelf life. The spray um, is good for three years. Um, there is a cotton plug in the bottle that you wouldn't want to really have to deal with right before as you're having an engine attack. So you want to take that out. Um, and um, yeah, Mike mentioned calling 911 and that you can take it a few five to 10 minutes before, you know, an event's coming. So those are all just good educational points for the patients, um, you know, they, that they may not always get. Yeah. I, I've seen some of those bottles of nitroglycerin that look like they were purchased 17 years ago. I know. And like, in oh, 1945. I, got, I haven't had to use these in a while. I'm like, well, that's, that's a good thing because I don't think don't, they're going to work very Don't much. shake that bottle too hard because it'll explode. That's how old it is. not work for you. Don't put that in the back of a cart in a Western. All right. So short-acting nitrates are our PRN solution for acute chest pain the patient may be having outpatient setting. But we ultimately want to give medications that can reduce the risk of them having those events in the first place. So hopefully they're not having to use their nitroglycerin um, sublingually. So the first class of meds we'll talk about is our beta blockers. Um, Cole already mentioned these, but this is sort of like the first line agents for a lot of patients. Um, from a mechanism standpoint, obviously we're reducing myocardial oxygen demand because you're reducing that heart rate. Um, you're uh, reducing contractility, left ventricular wall tension as well. And so overall that oxygen demand is going to go way down. Um, yeah, basically the, uh, the onset of angina um, or what they would refer to as like the ischemic threshold um, during exercise is often like delayed or avoided completely with patients on beta blockers as well. So they can help with quality of life um, in, as, as well as just sort of like reducing the risk of them having an angina. Um, all types of beta blockers do tend to be um, seen as kind of equally effective mm -hmm. when it comes to angina. Um, however, it is very important to make sure the patient doesn't have vasospastic angina. I know Cole kind of alluded to this earlier, or prinzmental angina, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. But uh, in those patients, um, beta blockers are not going to be effective, and they actually can... Uh, 
increase the the tendency to induce a coronary vasospasm because you're having like unopposed alpha activity. So if you're using, unless you're using like a carvedilol or something, that risk of um, alpha receptor activity can then throw off the effects, cause vasospasm, make the angina worse for those patients. Mm -hmm. So it has to be, you know, non-vasospastic, regular, just standard angina from chronic coronary syndromes that would be beta blocker approved. Um, you also got to keep in mind when we got to titrate the dose slow, you know, start low, go slow, that whole thing with beta blockers, that's still in play here because we don't want to induce side effects. Um, if the patient is going to stop them for whatever reason, whether it be side effects or what have you, you got to tight taper the patient off. If you just stop it immediately, um, you know, abrupt discontinuation is going to cause rebound angina. And so, you know, the, the symptoms are going to come right back. Um, you know, we, we want to have patients, um, heart rate being monitored. And so if uh, it's somebody who has, you know, um, you know, pretty severe angina, maybe 50 to 60, maybe even lower um, beats per minute would be our goal for those patients. And then, um, as long as you can get the patients in most patients, um, their exercise heart rate to less than hundred, then you're going to get the mass vast majority of patients that are having, you know, angina uh, during an exercise uh, session. So again, lowering that heart rate pretty, pretty significantly depending on what their baseline is, but that can, can help pretty tremendously with symptoms overall. If y'all heard any background noise, it's because we just had a 737 fly over the studio. We do happen to live close to an airport, but it's not often that we hear a, a plane pretty significantly fly over, right? So like, usually they, uh, like two in the morning and stuff, they'll mm -hmm. do it. Like the, the one of our old neighbors actually used to... Uh, he was in the Air Force, but he would, like, fly with, like, the special, or, like, take the special forces guys. He was, mm -hmm. like, some part of some special unit or whatever. And so he, they would have to practice really low, like, flying in those big planes. And mm -hmm. so you'd hear him just ripping to this guy, like, <laughs> at, like, 2 in the morning. And I was like, hey, man, you guys doing drills last night? He's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I guess the air base is right there. So they'd, they'd do Yeah, some, we have a... We have the Charleston International Airport, and we have the Air, Air Force, Force base. base. We also have a naval base, mm -hmm. all right around here. So much stuff here. Oh, speaking of that, I you know it makes you kind of nervous when you hear it now because there's all the talk about nuclear stuff, mm -hmm. and then they you know they put out like who's more likely to get hit by a nuclear bomb. Oh yeah, and it's not like the big cities like New York, New York and stuff. It's people who are close to um, like power plants, yeah, but also people who are close to military installations. Right. So we have an, an airport and then two military installations right here. Right. So yeah, gr great. fantastic. I know. <laughs> we're we're on the chopping block. So that's good um, news. Yes, yeah, so that's beta blockers. So um, so calcium channel blockers. Um, that's another option. And the guidelines say beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. I think a lot of people would go with beta blocker first. Um, but, uh, if they had a reason they couldn't use a beta blocker or contraindication, calcium channel blocker is a reasonable option. They improve anginal symptomology by causing coronary and peripheral vasodilation. They also reduce contractility. Um, long acting diltiazem specifically long acting or verapamil, um, or a second gen, which would be the dihydropyridines, amlodipine, um, extended release nifedipine. Those are the preferred calcium channel blockers to use. Um, they can be used in combination with beta blockers when initial treatment um, is not successful, or if you can't use a beta blocker, like I said, um, for contraindication or side effects, then that's when a calcium channel blocker would come in. Um, if they have vasospastic angina and we can't use a calcium channel blocker, a calcium channel blocker would be the preferred agent in Prince Metal angina. Um, there's also, you know, when it comes to the non-dihydro agents, there's there's some data, like, for example, with verapamil compared to a tenolol um, in patients that 
add CAD. Um, there was fewer adverse uh, outcomes with uh, verapamil compared to atenolol, which we all know atenolol is not our favorite anyway as far as beta blockers go, um, but that's usually more in a hypertension standpoint. But um, verapamil is associated with less cases of diabetes, so some of the beta blockers have actually been known to cause metabolic issues and lipid increases, things like that. Um, and so verapamil was better in that regard. Fewer anginal attacks just on just numerically, which that's kind of interesting. And then also um, just other side effects were less associated with verapamil compared to atenolol. That being said, um, diltiazem also has some advantages even compared to verapamil and may be a better option. Um, so it has the peripheral vasodilation and, you know, the relief of exercise-induced coronary constriction, all that good stuff. Um, but uh, the outcome studies comparing um, or the diltiazem or verapamil have never really been done. Um, that being said, though, that it does seem that diltiazem is a little bit better tolerated. It doesn't have the same GI effects as verapamil do, does, and um, it still is going to be, you know, very effective potentially. And <clears throat> if you do have to use a beta blocker and a non-dehydro-pretein calcium channel blocker together for whatever reason. Maybe the you know, beta blocker is not doing enough on its own and the patient's heart rate's still high, whatever. Um, you have to do very close monitoring, but diltiazem would be the one to use in that, that case. Mm. Um, and then with nifedipine, um, there's long-acting nifedipine. That's the one that has been looked at a little bit in this patient population. Um, but really, the it, it's not really been seen to improve like survival or anything like that. Um, amlodipine, um, again, probably because of its really long half-life, um, does actually seem to be one of the best uh, options for patients with CCS, um, especially if you need some reducing of the blood pressure as well, um, or, you know, patients who have vasospastic angina as well. But there's been plenty of uh, studies that have even compared, like, adding a calcium channel blocker like amlodipine to a beta blocker, even at first line. So, um, so we'll kind of talk about that after we've gone through everything, but just to kind of narrow it down a little bit more, the amlodipine or diltiazem, depending on non or dihedros that you need, just to give you some more context. We also have a Boeing plant right here. <laughs> I think we'd be in trouble. I have a lot of friends who work there. Yeah. Yeah. I hope not. You really, I feel like you're going to really jinx us here. <laughs> I don't know. I just started to think about it. I'm like, man, I think Cole's we're having a full um, panic attack. And fortunately the we're on like this side, but anyway. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not worried. Uh, so I referenced the long-acting nitrates and the tachyphylaxis. So there's a number of options we have for long-acting nitrates that you would use to prevent anginal symptoms, not um, the sublingual or the spray to use acutely. Uh, we have nitrobid, which is actually nitroglycerin ointment. This is an interesting one, right? So it's uh, it comes with a measuring applicator supplied with the tube of ointment. You spread the ointment using the dose applicator lightly onto the chest um, you don't rub it into the skin. Um, but yeah, you can use an ointment and have it absorb transdermally kind of locally to, to work. Uh, you can have more of a systemic transdermal patch, uh, which is branded as nitrodur, and that's nitroglycerin transdermal patch. Uh, you have to, because of the tachyphylaxis, you wear it for 12 to 14 hours, but then you have to remember to take it off for 10 to 12 hours. Probably a tough thing to remember for that reason. It's, I mean, people definitely use it. I feel like I see VA individuals use it. Patients use it like a lot more than others. But um, uh, for that reason, adherence can be an issue just remembering to take it off. So the once a day or twice a day medications might be a little bit easier there. Maybe it's not a formula with TRICARE or something. It must be or something. Also yeah. like the clonidine patch. Yeah, yeah really? Yeah, with, tri with, with VA Tri patients. Hmm. They like the transdermal stuff. I guess. I guess for adherence. It was maybe. like the only patients I'd ever see on clonidine patches. Yeah. Uh, maybe. 
don't know. Um, what 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 was what is Klondike used for though? The hypertensive crisis, but that wouldn't have to do with a patch, right? No, I think the, the I've seen them use it for like if they're using it just to like calm down, like patients who are having like anxiety and okay. things like that because it does it's like yeah you know kind of like a, central or alpha 2 agonist ptsd but, anxiety sort yeah of thing. but um i've also seen people use the patches for like just hypertension yeah i guess for adherence because usually clonidine you're taking it two three times a day right orally so I'm, I, I'm assuming that's what it is is for the adherence piece but obviously clonidine is not a good, good right. option anyway so so interesting i, I yeah. always wondered about that um so the ointment uh, also kind of a unusual one. So the patch and the ointment, I don't know. And you have to use the applicator too, because that obviously gets absorbed in the fingers. Right. Um, one of the off-label uses for that ointment is like Raynaud's phenomenon. So like you'll apply it to like one or two fingers and it opens up the blood vessels so that you're not having the constriction and rapid dilation that you'd get with uh, Raynaud's typically. Um, but uh, yeah, so you definitely need the applicator. So those are there. Um and I guess they're used. I mean, I, I did see both of them, but much more commonly, you'd probably see the oral options. So there's isosorbide mononitrate and dinitrate. Um, there's immediate release and extended release versions. I think the extended release versions are generally preferred for ease of dosing. Um, you have to dose them kind of specifically so that you get the nitrate-free period. Um, so taking and it well, it also depends on when the angina is happening. So some people have angina on exertion throughout the day. And so you'd want to dose them during the day and then have the nitrate-free period at night. But some people have nocturnal angina. And if that was the case, then you'd want to dose them um, at night or at least take them before bedtime and then have your nitrate-free period be most of the day. Same with the patches. You might have to sleep with the patch on in that instance and then remove it for a nitrate-free period during the day. So they're a little bit complicated. For that reason, um, they're they're not considered first line for prevention. You would go with metoprolol. Probably beta, uh, or I'm sorry, beta blocker, then calcium channel blocker. Then you could add this on or have this as a third line option. And with with nitrates, basically, you're with prolonged use, um, you're getting this reduced bioactivity, basically, of nitric oxide, and you also activate the the RAS system. So you're getting vasoconstriction as sort of like a response to that nitrate induced vasodilation. And so with like Cole was saying with the the intermittent like kind of therapy the nitrate free interval um you allow your body to kind of um have this regeneration of uh, what they call reduced sulfhydryl groups which are involved with the the nitrate to begin with and then that restores the vascular responsiveness to the nitrate by having that free interval um there's another medication as well that is kind of uh, in its own class, so to speak. Um, renazoline, renazoline uh, Renexa is the brand name. Um, and it's decreasing uh, myocardial oxygen demand basically by decreasing the ventricular tension and oxygen consumption overall. Um, one of the nuances with this medication, though, is it can cause uh, QT prolongation. So that's a, a concern. Um, it also is not supposed to be um, used in patients, or well, used with severe caution um, because it can cause acute renal failure in patients that have a creatinine clearance less than 30 mils per minute. Um, some other ad kind of adverse effects dizziness, headache, constipation, nausea. Um, can be used, you know, as a, as an add on or in place of beta blockers or calcium channel blockers or whatever, um, or add on therapy, depending on if those haven't worked. Um, one of the good things with the Renexa is that it doesn't have too much of an effect on, on heart rate or blood pressure. And so if the patient's blood pressure, heart rate are keeping them from being able to use calcium channel blockers or nitrates, or whatever, then this may be a good option in those patients. Yeah. Um, it is a CYP384 substrate. So 
it's really only a big deal when you have uh, strong 3A4 inhibitors or inducers, but kind of keep that in mind, especially with like the QT prolongation risk and things like that. Yep. Um, so in the guideline, there's a really great table um, kind of summarizing and also giving situations where you would or wouldn't use certain things. Uh, and it kind of gives you a stepwise look at it. Mike mentioned that he gets a lot of questions about this from his, uh, from his students. But basically, as needed, we have the short-acting nitrates, right? Then first line, we're going to have the, um, the beta blocker, calcium channel blocker in a regular situation. But then there's other situations where you might choose one over the other as far as non-dihydropyridine, dihydropyridine, calcium channel blockers, or maybe a beta blocker. So if their heart rate is greater than 80, you could go with a beta blocker or probably a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. In that instance, because of its negative chronotropic effect, Mm-hmm. Um, the heart rate is less than 50. You might choose the dihydropyridines because it doesn't have um, as much or any effect on heart rate. If they have left ventricular dystolic um, or left ventricular dysfunction or heart failure, beta blocker, of course, and might as well go with an evidence-based beta blocker in that instance for heart failure. And then if their blood pressure is low and you're having trouble with that, low-dose beta blocker, low-dose non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker because it's going to have less effects on blood pressure probably not choosing carbidolol in that instance. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then there's others. So second line, standardly beta blocker or dihydropyridine. Um, And it kind of follows the same um, algorithm, but then second line, if they, um, if their heart rate's less than 50, you would probably go with a long acting nitrate in that instance. Um, If they have um, uh, left ventricular dysfunction, you have to add on an extra, um, uh, uh, an extra medication to the beta blocker, long-acting nitrate, or possibly ibaprenine in that instance? Yeah, there is there is some data from, like, the beautiful trial and a couple of the vabradine um, looking at uh, occurrence of um, angina and ACS and things. So there is some data in patients that have, like, that as an underlying condition, and you're you maybe trying to avoid the patient from having blood pressure drops or... Um, issues with you know hospitalization due to heart failure that side of things then you can add on ibabradine there's probably other better options as well but since it has had some data the european guidelines included it in there plus ibabradine has been approved in europe for way longer so that's probably why they're a lot more comfortable with it um just uh reiterating something too when when cole mentioned the the beta blocker or the calcium channel blocker standard therapy um there are Potential situations where you may even combine beta blocker and calcium channel blocker right off the, you know, from the beginning. In much more rare cases, you may do a beta blocker and non-dihydro together at the beginning, but you'd have to be super careful. A lot of very close monitoring, low doses, very low, slow titrations. It'd be a lot easier and probably more beneficial to the patient overall if you did the beta blocker plus like an amlodipine or nifedipine ER um, instead of the non-dihydros. And then if the heart rate is still above 80 when you actually do the combo, um, that would kind of indicate an, an okay situation to do either or, um, either cal- either types of calcium channel blocker. But if it's less than, you know, less than 50, you're having to start off with just the the, the dihydros like calcium was, uh, or um, like Cole was saying. Um, so, you know, I'm lodipine, philodipine. And then instead of being able to switch to beta blocker or anything else, you have to gen- jump right or switch right to the long acting. Um, nitrate or added to it. So it kind of takes away a lot of your options, but most patients, their heart rate is not going to be that, that low unless they're like a sprinter or something. Right. Um, but, uh, kind of our, one of our last line options and it's usually a good add on, um, would be the Renexa at that point. So, and that can kind of be applied to multiple, 
you know, situations, other comorbidities, because it's not really going to affect the blood pressure. It's not really going to affect the heart rate. It's not contraindicated in patients with less ventricular dysfunction or anything. So it can really be like sort of a third line or fourth line add-on for any of these types of things. Yep. So all that we've talked about so far with chronic coronary syndrome has been to address that first goal, which was um, treatment or prevention of the actual anginal episodes. Uh, the other goal is to prevent long-term uh, complications like heart attack, MI, stroke, that sort of thing. So there are instances where we will need to use um, aspirin therapy or antiplatelet therapy to try to prevent that from happening. Um, so it can be used as secondary prevention, aspirin can, uh, 75 to 162 milligrams a day. Um, for patients who have diabetes and a history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, um, that would be a pretty strong indication. Um, you could consider aspirin therapy for primary prevention with patients who have diabetes and are at increased risk for um, cardiovascular issues. Um, There's kind of a risk versus benefit thing, a discussion with the patient because of the increased risk of bleeding. So obviously, have we done an episode on like aspirin primary prevention and like all the different things that have come out? I think we've touched on it a little bit, like the Ascend trial and all that. Yeah, so obviously aspirin for primary prevention has been used for a really long time and it seemed to go back and forth about the recommendations regarding that and whether it was beneficial or not. The age, when to do it, in these specific situations, blah, blah, blah. So there was, like Mike mentioned, the ASPRI trial, the ARRIVE trial that showed no cardiovascular benefit with aspirin um, for primary prevention, but with had an increased bleed risk. But there was the ASCEND trial, which was aspirin for primary prevention in patients with diabetes, and there was a reduction in cardiovascular events um, over a seven-year period with a number needed to treat of 91. And then in, there was also an increased major bleed risk in that instance um, same period with a number needed to harm of 111. I remember when I was in school, the recommendation was like over, over like um, 60 years or maybe over 50 with a 10 year life expectancy and all this kind of stuff. Like it was really strange. The ones that we would consider and then like diabetes, it was, yeah. it was kind of strange, but yeah. Yeah. I, it's definitely changed on the U S preventive service task force updated their stuff, I believe. Yeah. So, um, Real quick, I wanted to, because I didn't mention this, I want to make sure we um, put it out there. Uh, AJ, will you flip to my screen so you can kind of see? This is the the table from the European guidelines to kind of break down, like, the different you know, combo options and stuff. But one a couple of things I did want to did not forget to mention is if you have a beta blocker on board with, left, you know, left ventricular dysfunction, you know, if it's the comorbidity, start with a beta blocker. The, the reason why, you know, potentially you're adding on the long-acting nitrate as opposed to a calcium channel blocker, one, you absolutely can't use a non-dihydro calcium channel blocker in like in a reduced ejection fraction situation. And then if, um, you know, you're thinking like outcome data and whatnot, patients that have heart failure, there is some, it's limited and it's in combination with hydralazine, but there is some limited data um, with uh, isosorbide dinitrate and hydralazine combo. So I'm assuming that's kind of why they lumped that as one of the options because it's probably the calcium channel blocker is not going to do the, not the dihydro calcium channel blocker, like amylopine is not really going to do anything to benefit the heart failure. So maybe their thought is that long acting nitrate could be, or the ivaporidine would be another option because we know that reduces hospitalization and heart failure. Um, and then with, uh, the big thing that was just making sure you don't combine the non-dehydros in patients with heart failure or with, you know, uh, ivaporidine or anything like that. Right. So we're not going to, we're going to cause some issues. I did want to mention one more thing about aspirin is that 
you will find places that recommend um, primary prevention in this instance, even without diabetes, in the instance of coronary of chronic coronary syndrome because of the coronary artery disease. So the, the guidelines do reference that. Um, they say aspirin 75 to 100 may be considered in patients without a history of MI or revascularization, but with definite evidence of coronary artery disease on imaging, which might be our patients here, chronic coronary syndrome with definite coronary artery disease on imaging. They don't give it the highest level of recommendation. It's like a 2B with a C quality level of evidence. Um, so uh, it's, it's not a strong recommendation that they give, but like, for instance, the up-to-date authors recommend that in this instance. So you'll see that. Did we talk about clopidogrel or anything? No, we haven't yet. So the other potential thing you may see is patients who maybe they're candidates for aspirin therapy, especially if they've had a previous MI, revascularization, what have you. Um, but, you know, maybe they have an aspirin intolerance or whatever the case may be. Um, clopidogrel could be a potential option of uh, as an alternate therapy to aspirin. Um, also, if the patient has... Um, a history of like PAD uh, or history of some sort of ischemic stroke, TIA, something along those lines, then clopidogrel could potentially be uh, um, used in preference to aspirin as well. But that's a kind of low quality of evidence um, compared to some of the other recommendations. It's a 2B as well. And uh, so just one of those things that if you see a patient on long-term clopidogrel or any of the other antiplatelets like that, that may be the thought process behind it. To be or not to be. They do also mention um, the use of proton pump inhibitors to prevent the bleed risk or to lower the bleed risk. So they give a strong level of recommendation um, for using a proton pump inhibitor with patients using aspirin as monotherapy, dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, in the instance of Plavix, there's that whole thing about the interaction with proton pump inhibitors and clopidogrel. So um, whether or not that's like matters much, what do they recommend? Um, Pentoprazole to be used with clopidogrel just to yeah, be so safe or whatever. Yeah, the 2C19 interaction and all right, that. Right, So, yeah, you'll see that too. Good stuff. Um, so, uh, anything else we got to cover? That's chronic coronary syndrome. Basically. <laughs> um, AJ, I want you, uh, will you pull up um, my screen real quick? So, Real quick, I wanted to just make sure I thank our sponsor, Pearls. Uh, this is just an example of one of their uh, charts. This is their diabetes um, treatment algorithm from 2022, um, and it kind of just walks through uh, the steps of you know, various treatment options based on comorbidities and all that. It's basically based on the ADA guidelines, but in a much more uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing to the eye format, I feel like. But he's got some great algorithms. Uh, if you haven't downloaded uh Pearls, then make sure you go to the URL pearls.com slash core consult rx. Uh, you can get a free, you know, membership and you'll have some limited access. You'll get some free uh, charts to download. And um, basically, uh, if you like the app, you feel like it's beneficial, then you can upgrade it and get access to all of the content. But they're adding stuff all the time. Um, they've, they've been a great help to us kind of uh, as been a sponsor for us for almost over a year now i guess and um they've been great to work with and their app has grown a tremendous amount in just a, in the last year so um definitely check it out uh you know throw them some support for supporting us um and don't forget if you are a member of freec.com then go to the link in the show notes 
Uh, it'll take you to the post-activity test for this episode, the password, which we didn't mention in the beginning. I was going to mention that because I, I realized I forgot. <laughs> it's good because I wanted to make sure you listen to the end this time. <laughs> so if you cheaters, they just get the password and then cheat on the exam. No, I'm just kidding. Um, coronary is the, the password, all caps, C-O-R-O-N-A-R-Y, all capital letters, and uh, that'll give you access to the uh, post-activity exam. If you're an unlimited member holder. Yes. If you don't have that, We'll work. You need to, yes, you need to register. You get your life together. <laughs> exactly. Correct your path. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, check that out. Get your credit. Um, also, if you want more like lecture style podcasts, make sure you check out the Patreon. So patreon.com slash core consult RX has uh, basically lectures that I do for my PA students. It's all pharmacotherapy, um, pharmacology, and uh, I try to update them pretty regularly on there. So um, thanks to everybody who's been signing up for that lately. Um, really appreciate that. That helps us out a lot. Um, so that, that link will be in the show notes as well. Um, if you have any questions or comments, concerns for Cole, myself, or our friend AJ back there working the cameras, um, emails will be in the show notes. You can reach us on the social media platforms. Um, send us an email. Send us a text. There's a number in the, in the show notes as well. Um, we'll do our best to get back to you as quick as we can. I know we're not always the best at that sometimes, but there's only a couple of us, so um, bear with us. We'll get back to you as quick as we can. And uh, above all, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope you're enjoying the podcast still, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Y'all have a good night.